Well, good morning and happy Lord's Day to everybody. Uh, This morning is our second to last sermon in this series on the nature of Scripture. And this morning we're arriving at the very important subject of the preaching of the Bible. The creedal statement that I've selected as our lead-in to worship this morning is from a very important Reformed creed called the Second Helvetic Confession. It was written in 1566 by a man named Heinrich Bullinger. It was written right near the end of his life. Bullinger wrote this creed actually as a personal statement of faith, but it became important, um, especially for the Reformed churches in Switzerland. So here is section four of the Second Helvetic Confession. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is preached and received of the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be feigned nor to be expected from heaven And that now the word itself, which is preached, is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches, who, although he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God abides true and good. I've always found the initial sentence of this section to be especially forceful and very sobering for those of us who preach the word. Again, it says... The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Let's pray together as we prepare to open God's word. Lord, it is very clear as we read your word that your mission to your world has about it certain priorities. Jesus, you came down from heaven from the Father with the priority of fulfilling the law and the prophets, with the priority of bearing witness to the truth. Lord, you came with the priority of going to the cross, there to die an atoning, redeeming death. Lord, you came with the priority to save sinners. And Lord God, it is so easy for us to veer away from the priorities that you have in your mission to the world. It is so easy for us, Lord, to focus on our own agendas, our own carnal wants, and Lord, forget or start to neglect your priorities. Lord, would you forgive us? And Lord, as we look at one of your great priorities this morning, we pray that you would uh, rebuke us if necessary, get us back on track with your priorities, challenge us. Lord, ultimately restore us so that our heart matches your heart, so that our will matches your will, our desires match your desires, and our passions match yours. We pray these things in the mighty, saving name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
How many times over the past number of months have you gone into a store or into a business and on the door as you enter, there is a sign posted with the word attention or attention, I guess would be my bad French version, written there in big, bold letters up top and then maybe smaller letters underneath, a notice that says something like, face masks are required. Well, if you're like me, you barely notice these signs anymore. They are so common, they're everywhere. But the design of the signs, of course, is to get our attention, right? To get our attention before we enter into the store. And so that word, attention, in big, bold letters, right up top. As 2 Timothy 4 opens, the Apostle Paul really wanted to grab the full attention of his younger protege in the ministry, Timothy. Paul wanted the whole of Timothy's attention. Put down your phone, Timothy. Turn off all of your screens. Stop whatever you're doing and look me square in the eye. Don't talk, just listen and listen very intently and soberly to what I'm about to say. It is so vital, Timothy, that you hear me. What Paul does here, in essence, is he puts a giant attention sign in front of Timothy, and not just sort of on the entry door, but it's like he papers it over the entire storefront. It's a big attention sign. Well, let's go to the text and listen with me, won't you, to the intensity, to the urgency, to the very solemn weight that the Apostle Paul infuses into the proceedings here. He says to the young, a young pastor, Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, or we could translate, I solemnly testify. Timothy. The flavor of this word here, charge, or solemnly testify, it has a legal flavor about it. Like Paul is sincerely testifying in a court of law. I charge you, I solemnly testify in the presence of God. Timothy, right now, both of us are in the presence of God. God is here right now, and he's paying close attention to my testimony and to your hearing the testimony. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Timothy, you need to know that the Son of God, Christ Jesus, is also present in this proceeding as I solemnly testify. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Timothy, your service and my service will be weighed at the bar 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus will judge our service. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy, Jesus is going to appear one day. He will come back a second time. The king of all the universe is going to come back and undertake the full and final implementation of his universal kingdom. Friends, can you see how this verse is like a giant attention sign that Paul puts in front of Timothy? Let's take stock of this just for a moment. John Piper has pointed out that this first verse of 2 Timothy 4 gives us what he calls an extended, exalted, intensifying introduction to the command. And we're going to look at the command and what the command is in just a moment. But Piper notes that this extended, exalted, intensifying introduction to the command here that we have in verse 1 is without parallel in the Bible. It is absolutely extraordinary. Paul sets out here very clearly to grab the full attention of Timothy and to stress to Timothy the full weight and the importance of the command that he is about to give. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. There's the command. Preach the word. It's this command to preach the word that gets such an unparalleled, majestic, solemn, forceful introduction from the Apostle Paul. Preach the word. Now this, friends, is highly significant. It is highly significant. Already in this letter, Paul has uh, been concerned to exhort young Timothy to rightly handle the word of truth, chapter 2, verse 15. And Paul has already declared the God-breathedness, the divine inspiration of Scripture, and also the profitability of Scripture in chapter 3, verse 16. Now, at 4-2, Paul laser-beams Timothy Preach the word, and he does it with this extraordinary, imposing, I would even say, imposing introduction. Preach the word. That word preach could be translated proclaim the word, or even herald the word. The idea is to make a public 
attention-getting declaration of the word. And do notice, friends, very, very carefully here, notice that it is the word. It is the word that Timothy is charged to proclaim or to herald. It's the word that pastors are charged to preach. It's the scriptures, the Bible, the God-breathed words of God in the 66-book Bible. It's the words that God has given us that pastors are called to preach. These words that make people wise for salvation and make people equipped for good works. It's that word, that word of God that we are commanded to preach. Now listen very carefully. If you have a person in the pulpit who is forever stringing together personal anecdote after personal anecdote and ending each week with the standard tearjerker story, that person is doing something far less than preaching the word. Or if you have someone who spends the bulk of the pulpit time sharing personal testimony to the neglect of preaching scripture, that person is doing something other than preaching the word. Personal testimony is good, but let's not call it preaching the word necessarily. Or if you have a person in the pulpit who forcefully, even charismatically, shares their opinions on cultural matters and only barely lets Scripture speak, if at all, that person is not preaching the Word. If the person in the pulpit lets commentary on current events win the day, instead of staying put in God's word, that person is not preaching the word. Or if you have a person in the pulpit whose usual habit is to offer psychological uplift or to offer sentimental kind of cotton candy Reader's Digest tips for better living, that person is not preaching the word. John Piper is on the mark when he says this, quote, it is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks on how to get along in the world, someone else can do that. But most of our people, he says, have no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of God. Close quote. My friends, we must in our churches preach the word. The word where the supreme beauty and the majesty of God are revealed to us. But we can go further here. What else is less than preaching the word? Well, how about this? 
When the person in the pulpit uses a Bible verse or a passage as the so-called basis for his message, but then launches into 30 minutes of his own thoughts with really no relation to that passage or that verse, that too is far less than preaching the word. Or if somebody in the pulpit has a a regular habit, of structuring every message so that it points out what we are doing wrong with the invariable conclusion that we must go correct our behavior and do better this week. That's law preaching. That's law preaching that is not preaching the word because it has left out the person and the work of Jesus Christ who is the remedy for our wrong, and who we so desperately need. Or if a congregation receives a regular diet of coping strategies from the pulpit, where things are always left completely on the human plane, on the horizontal plane, Instead of receiving the good news week after week concerning what God has done for us in his son, then that congregation, left only with its coping strategy preaching, will be a sadly impoverished congregation. Likewise, if you can go weeks and months listening to a preacher and all you hear about week after week are our needs, our problems, our responsibilities, all horizontal human issues, barely a substantive word about Father, Son, and Spirit and their glory and their work and their plan and their designs and their supremacy then be assured you are listening to something far less than the preaching of the word. Or to use uh, Sid Gradanus's helpful standard, I think it's helpful, Gradanus says if the sermon you're listening to could be taken and preached in a Jewish synagogue without any trouble, because that sermon never mentions Christ and his work, then it is something other than Christian preaching. It is something other than the preaching of the word, because as we stressed especially two weeks ago, the word is a Christ-centered word. It is a Christ-centered word. From Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, Christ must be preached in the preaching of the word. Now, a major, major part of the mission and call that God has put on my life is to bang the drum incessantly for the preaching of his word in our evangelical churches. I insist on it. But we must understand what it means, actually, to preach the word. There are so many prevalent, ongoing misconceptions about what it is to preach the word, even in some churches that claim to be Bible-believing churches. 
The situation is so bad that even back in 1990, 30 years ago, John, John Leith was observing that so many people in our churches, quote, have a difficult time distinguishing the preaching of the gospel from entertainment or therapy or moral exhortation or political advice. Close quote. Oh, that every church across the land would heed God in the verses we looked at earlier and demand of their pastors that they preach the word. Over the course of this sermon series, we have been meditating together on the nature of our Bible. The Bible has been breathed out by God himself. The Bible is inspired. The Bible carries the authority of God. The Bible is without error because God has given it. The Bible is crystal clear because God has given it. The Bible is necessary and the Bible is sufficient for everything related to salvation and good works. The Spirit works with the Bible as he illuminates us to the truth. The Bible is a great unity within diversity that God has orchestrated, and he's done that beyond our human ability to do so. It is this divine word, friends, this Bible, these scriptures, that pastors in pulpits are solemnly charged to preach. And in your life, in your life, it's not just about pastors, in your life it is this Bible that you must declare as his disciple as you lead a small group or as you reach out to a hurting friend, maybe one-on-one -on -one across a table with a cup of coffee or as you pray in a prayer meeting, your prayer should be informed by this word of God, preach the word. Now, speaking as a guy who is regularly in the pulpit, I am super aware, super aware, that although my own personal stories and my own personal opinions and my anecdotes maybe are somewhat interesting, maybe, those things, I want you to listen, those things will not they cannot turn another person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Only the Spirit working with the Word can do that. We must preach the Word. We must have preachers across this land who have been ravished by the Word who love the Bible and love the God who exhaled the Bible and who desire nothing but the Word to be proclaimed. To paraphrase what the great Scottish preacher James Stewart once said, I love this, it's not my personality 
that will redeem people. Thank heaven for that. It's not my grasp of truth or my powers as a defender of the faith that will convert souls to Jesus Christ. It is God. God's Spirit working with God's Word, bringing people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what converts and saves people and transforms people and gives them eternal life. And so the question of the hour, why would we preach anything but the Word? Why would we hinder the lion from being unleashed to do its work week by week? Why would we impoverish our people in our congregations by neglecting the Word or giving it partial attention as we ramble on with our stories, our tips, our opinions. David Allen asks the following question as he writes to preachers. He asks, by what hubris, what pride, by what hubris do we think we could possibly have anything more important to say than what God himself has said through Scripture? Preachers must be tethered to the Word. Preach the Word. They must be tethered to the Word. They must preach the Word. Brian Chappelle also chimes in here in a similar way and says this to preachers, we have nothing of importance, merit, or authority to say comparable to what God has said. Friends, in our churches, it is so crucially important that we get down on our knees and that we encourage the preaching, not of ourselves, but of the divinely breathed, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient Word of God. But now let's talk in positive terms about what preaching the Word is, what it actually looks like. We've talked at some length about what preaching the Word is not. Now let's detail a little bit what it is. Well, the best and the most crucial kind of preaching for the health and the flourishing of the Church of Jesus Christ is what we call expository preaching or expositional preaching. Listen. The main diet, the main diet of the church of Jesus Christ should be preaching that is expository preaching. The word exposit has to do with explanation or setting out or showing. An expository preacher of God's word explains the text and sets out the truth of the text and brings the text to bear on the lives of those listening. And he does that worshipfully. Preaching is worship, to quote John Piper. He does that worshipfully to the glory of God. Expository preaching is text-driven, text-centered, worshipful preaching. The meaning of the text, whether we are talking about a verse or whether we're talking about a sentence or a paragraph or even a whole book, 
the meaning of the text under consideration and the reality that is described in that text, the perspective of the text, that is what we're after. The shape and the substance of the very sermon should closely parallel the shape and the substance of the text under consideration. And this morning the text under consideration is preach the word. As John Stott has said, in expository preaching, the text of Scripture is, quote, the text of Scripture is a master which dictates and controls what is said from the pulpit. The preacher's role is simply to provide a human voice for what God has already preached in his word. In J.I. Packer's words, Preaching can be described this way. It can be described as human lips uttering God's message. Human lips uttering God's message. I mentioned John Stott just a moment ago. I want to give you his full definition of expository preaching because I think it's quite helpful. Stott says this. Listen carefully to this. To expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. It's the role of an expositor. A little later, John Stott says this, quote, Whether our biblical text is long or short, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, relevantly, without addition, subtraction, or falsification. In expository preaching, he says, the biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, nor is it a convenient peg on which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts, but it is, he says, a master which dictates and controls what is said. Close quote. Now, just to be clear, this particular uh, series of sermons that we have been undertaking since mid-September has not been, has not been a series of expository sermons per se. Uh, and that's despite everything I've just said on the vital importance of expository preaching. This series of sermons, this particular series, has been admittedly more topical in nature, more focused on what we call uh, catechetical instruction about a major area of doctrine, and this time it is the nature of Scripture and the place of Scripture in our lives. But it's okay, and in fact I would argue that it's even necessary from time to time for us to take a few weeks to engage a topical uh, sermon series like this one on a very important subject. However, again, as I said before, the main diet 
In the current permutation of Snowden Baptist Church, the main diet here is expository preaching. For the bulk of each year, we are in the text of Scripture. We're working through passages. We're working even through entire books of Scripture. And in fact, in the new year, the plan is to get us back into another book study, working through an entire book verse by verse. The main preaching diet at Snowden Baptist is expository preaching, and I would argue that the main diet in any evangelical church should be expository preaching, in any church should be expository preaching, systematically working through texts and books of Scripture. Why this argument? Well, again, because of all that we've been saying in this entire series of sermons. If the Bible is indeed God speaking, speaking authoritatively and inerrantly and clearly and sufficiently, then, friends, it stands to reason, does it not, that we would insist that the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, be preached rigorously, verse by verse, by precious verse, as often as possible. If the claim that we've made in this series of sermons is true, that God himself has spoken in Scripture and that he continues to speak in Scripture, then wouldn't we desire that our pastors preach the Word? And wouldn't we make sure as congregations to carve out for them, to grant them ample time in the preparation of the Word? Wouldn't we want our pastors to to act as conduits, to act as channels of God's word so that every Sunday we are getting the voltage that God has spoken in his word? I mean, consider with me for a moment the things that are said in the Bible about the voltage or the potent power of God's words. What are we dealing with here? The potent power of God's words. We need God's potent words saturating us over top and underneath and all around us in our lives. Think about the magnitude of the power involved when God simply speaks words in Genesis chapter 1 and the entire material world springs into existence. God's words have that kind of staggering power. As Psalm 33, 9 puts it, God spoke and what? And it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. In Jeremiah 23, verses 28 and 29, God compares his word first to fire and then to a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. God's word, friends, is potent like a fire that burns up chaff and it is powerful like a swinging hammer. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, you may know that verse well, God describes his word as accomplishing, as succeeding, always accomplishing and succeeding the things for which he has sent it forth. 
In the words of Carl Henry, God tolerates no fruitless proclamation of his word. I love that. He tolerates no fruitless proclamation of his word. His word, friends, is an actively accomplishing, succeeding word. It is potent. And then listen to this. In Hebrews 1.3, the entire universe right now, the entire universe is upheld by the word of God's power. Without the word of God's power upholding the universe right now, this pulpit, for one thing, would disintegrate because there would be no friction anymore in the nails and, and, and the, the, the joints to keep it together. God is upholding even this by the word of his power right now. God's word, friends, is so magnificently powerful that the entire universe right now is upheld by it. Why would we preach anything but the word of God? In Hebrews 4.12, we hear more about the voltage of God's word. Listen to this. The word of God, you know this. The word of God is living. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is active. The word of God is living. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing Listen to all these verbs, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. Wow. It's God's potent word, friends, and nothing else that needs to be unleashed from our pulpits. It's God's words that carry power to save, that carry power to transform and create. Pastors have no business preaching pop psychology or Reader's Digest tips or politics from the pulpit. They must preach the word and congregations must insist that they do. Expository preaching also helps preachers avoid defaulting to their pet themes. Every preacher has a pet theme or two that he would prefer to land on week in and week out. But if you have committed to working through an entire book of Scripture systematically in a, ser in a sermon series, inevitably it's going to take you away from your pet themes and into territory that has a far greater range that is going to nourish congregations far better. Preaching pastors must understand themselves as servants to the Word. Servants of the Word who stand under the authority of the Word. The preacher must serve the text and thereby serve the Lord who speaks it. The preacher must see himself as an ambassador to whom the divine message has been committed. And the preacher must remain bound, bound to that divine message and not deviate from it. As Donald Coggan once put it, he says, the Christian preacher is not at liberty, is not at liberty to invent or choose his message. 
It has been committed to him, and it is for him to declare, expound, and commend to his hearers. I want to read you now a quote from the very first sermon that John Piper ever preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. These are words that Piper spoke to his congregation 40 years ago as the brand new pastor of that church. And I think his words are exactly right when it comes to the posture that preachers must have as they come into the pulpit. Piper says this, quote, listen to this. The source of my authority in this pulpit is not my wisdom, nor is it a private revelation granted to me beyond the revelation of Scripture. My words have authority only insofar as they are the repetition, unfolding, and proper application of the words of Scripture. I have authority only when I stand under authority, he said. My deep conviction about preaching is that a pastor must show the people that what he is saying was already said or implied in the Bible. If it cannot be shown, it has no special authority. My heart aches, he says, for the pastor who increases his own burden by trying to come up with ideas to preach to his people. As for me, I have nothing of abiding worth to say to you, but God does. And of that word, I hope and pray that I never tire of speaking. The life of the church depends on it. Close quote. So from the outset of his preaching ministry, Piper recognized that being called, being commissioned to preach the word meant necessarily to come under the authority of that word, under the authority of Father, Son, and Spirit who gave the word. Friends, I pray very seriously and very earnestly that the same would be the case across this land in every Christian pulpit in a new revival of expository preaching. And I invite you to join me in praying in that way. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. The word must be preached. It must be preached. Why? Because as J.I. Packer says, Scripture is revelation. God is glorious. People are lost. Christ is unchanging. Persuasion is needed. Satan is active. And God's Spirit is sovereign. That's why the word must be preached. The word must be preached in our pulpits. Proclamation and warning and teaching must happen in our pulpits because God's goal is that all of us as God's people would be presented mature in Christ. Colossians 1.28. That's why we preach the word. The word must be preached in our churches because the word is the only thing, it's the only thing that cuts through 
the constant, unyielding, confusing cacophony in our world, the clamor in our world. It's the only thing that cuts through. The word must be preached from our pulpit simply because it is the will and the intention of God that this would happen. John Leith says something rather forthright here. I think it's well worth pondering. He says this, quote, listen to this, the validity of preaching does not depend upon the response it elicits. It is a witness or a testimony that God wills to be made known in his world even if all reject it. Close quote. The word must be preached from our pulpits because, as that great Scottish preacher James Stewart once said, human hearts bombarded with grim perplexities and damaging shadows of despair are crying as never before, is there any word from the Lord? The word must be preached from our pulpits because it's the only word that adequately nourishes the flock of God. As Timothy Whitmer says, it is only through God's word that the, that the flock will be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy of their souls. We must preach the word. The word must be preached from our pulpits because God wants to turn us from deadness to white-hot, to borrow John Piper's term, term white-hot affection for him. He wants to turn us from deadness to white-hot affection because he knows that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore for us. He wants us to, to turn to this white-hot affection, to be saved, to come to know him so that we can glut ourselves on him eternally. The word must be preached from our pulpits and the power of the Holy Spirit to quote Wilbur Ellsworth, because God aims to break up the soil of the heart and plant the seed of his word deep in our life so that the gracious work of God may produce the fruit of grace. We must preach the word. Now there are some, even in the ranks of today's church, who disparage preaching. Such people have succumbed to the spirit of the age and they are speaking of the death of preaching because it just seems so outmoded in our technological soundbite age. Aren't there more effective ways, they ask, to build up the church of God? Well, my reply is to say very simply to such people that 1 Corinthians 1.21 has not changed. It's still there in the Bible in 2020, and that verse says very plainly that through the foolishness of what we preach, through the foolishness of what we preach, God saves those who believe. And so, as Mark Dever says, expository preaching is what pastors are to give themselves to and what congregations are to demand of them. Friends, the word preached must be an absolute priority in our churches. The unleashing of the God-breathed, authoritative, inerrant, clear, necessary, sufficient word, this must take pride of place in our churches. The word preached is irreplaceable. 
So pray for your pastor. I'm asking for your prayers. Pray for preaching pastors everywhere and pray for the multiplication of those whose life commitment would be, would be to do the hard work, the hard, and it is hard work, the hard work of preaching the word week by week in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that preachers of the word would be truly and steadfastly Christ-centered in their whole approach. Always, always, always taking congregations to Christ in their sermons always and forever lifting up the glory of Jesus Christ before their hearers and showing Jesus Christ to their hearers. To borrow the words of Tim Keller, pray that preachers would demonstrate Christ's greatness and reveal him as worthy of praise and adoration. Oh, friends, that the profile of Jesus would be elevated in our churches. But in your praying, people of God, I don't want you to stop there. Seek God concerning your own ministry of the word. Your own ministry of the word. Ask for wisdom to unleash the word of God in your own ministry. As you counsel somebody, or as you have coffee with an anxious person, or as you teach a small group, or as you blog, or post on social media, or as you mentor someone, you too have a ministry of proclaiming God's word, so pray God's strength and pray his wisdom. To us, finally, has been committed the most momentous message the world has ever known. I want you to listen to how James Stewart outlines the momentous message that we are all called as Christians to proclaim. The message is this, that God has invaded history with power and great glory, that in the day of man's terrible need, a second Adam has come forth to the fight and to the rescue, that in the cross, the supreme triumph of naked evil has been turned once for all to irrevocable defeat. That Christ is alive now, hallelujah, and present through his spirit. That through the risen Christ there has been let loose into the world a force which can transform life beyond recognition. This is the most momentous message human lips were ever charged to speak. My friends, may we do everything humanly possible, everything humanly possible to promote the preaching of God's word. Let's pray together. Our great God, as we look at this command and the solemnity that surrounds it, the seriousness that surrounds it, Lord, we are taken aback at how important the preaching of your word is to your heart. And Father, I pray for not only Snowden Baptist Church, but for churches everywhere, that there would be a refreshed, spirit-given energy to preach your word and to receive your word from the congregation's side, that you would light fires for your word, as we've been dwelling in your word all these weeks and, and talking about the nature of your word, Lord, light fires in us, fresh fires for your word. 
I pray these things in the mighty and the powerful saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.